Today on Ag News Daily. From caring about the environment to their employees to um, public safety and health, um, animal welfare, of course, is a big one. Um, and we just want to make sure that we are doing everything that we can. Good afternoon and happy Wednesday from the Ag News Daily podcast. It's Ashton Carr joined by Delaney Howell. I'm very excited that it's already Wednesday. I feel like it's been a long week already. I don't know about you, Delaney. Uh, yes, 100% I do. And we had Monday off, so it really shouldn't feel like a long week. I feel a little bit bad saying that, but oh my gosh, I've been doing so much uh, running around and going back and forth. I mean, I just got back from Colorado on Monday, and then I'm going back home to Dallas today. So I've just been doing a lot of traveling the past couple of weeks, which I'm very happy about, of course, since we didn't do too much traveling in 2020. But I, I don't think I'm cut out for this anymore. It's about wiped me out. Yeah, well, things are starting to reopen, so you better get used to traveling again. I guess so. You're absolutely right, Delaney. But uh, one thing that's not moving so fast, like the world is reopening so fast, uh, wasn't so fast today, was the news, Delaney. I don't have a whole lot Mm -hmm. Tell you, but one thing that did come across the news wires today was trade talks between the US and Canada. Trade officials from both of those countries discussed the trade issues yesterday. And U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai says that the meeting with Canada's Trade Minister, Mary Ng, focused on their shared goals. But Tai also expressed concern about Canada's compliance with the one-year-old USMCA agreement. According to the USTR office, Tai stressed the importance of Canada meeting its home shopping equipments under the USMCA. Tai also urged Canada to abandon a proposed unilateral digital service tax. Softwood lumber and dairy issues were discussed, as well as World Trade Organization reforms. That softwood lumber and the dairy issues, those are some things that we've talked a little bit about on the podcast before, and I don't have super hard-hitting facts about what was said or anything, just that they were discussed. And then Ty is expected to comment further about the Mexico City meeting during a press conference this afternoon. So hopefully we'll have a little bit more information on that tomorrow. Yeah, I agree. There wasn't a whole lot of information said, but it does sound like a lot of that time was focused on talking dairy as well as the other things you mentioned there. And it sounds like the U.S. is concerned about the way that Canada has been treating dairy imports in particular And that has been a big point of contention. But because China did agree under the USMCA to increase access to its market for milk, cheese, cream, skim milk, powder, butter, ice cream, and whey by establishing new quotas. But it sounds like perhaps they're not meeting those quotas. Like I said, Delaney, hopefully we'll have a little bit more information tomorrow. And the article says that Catherine Tai is supposed to comment about the Mexico City meeting. So I'm guessing that she's talking to our Mexican counterparts about trade as well. So hopefully we do have a little bit more information on those conversations. But that's all I have for that story. Like you said, not a whole lot there. No, unfortunately not. But I'm going to continue taking us further south of the border down to Brazil because we've gotten a few different 
Estimates released today and late last week about Brazil's safrina corn crop. We saw Bloomberg surveyed about eight different analysts that said they're forecasting Brazil's production to be down about 7 million tons compared to where we were in June. Range of estimates varied from 83 million tons to 95.2 million tons. We also are expecting to see CONAB's estimates come out either tomorrow or Friday. It's anticipated that those are supposed to be lowered as well. But we also saw Ag Rural continue to forecast a cut in production for Brazil's center-south region, down to 54.6 million tons, about 6 million tons lower than their May estimate. But uh, USDA's Foreign Ag Service has raised their forecast for soybean crops. So we saw a cut to corn production down there, but an increase to about 99.6 million acres here for this year moving forward. And about 143.5 million metric tons of soybeans next year. So a little bit of a mixed bag there, obviously a little bit supportive for the corn market if we do in fact see those cuts come through and don't see that production realized, but could be a little tighter on the soybean side of things. So it's going to be really really dependent this year to see what we get as far as a U.S. crop goes, Ash. And we really can't afford to have much of a mix-up or much of a uh, disaster here when it comes to production this year. We don't have a lot of room for error. And I'm really hoping that nothing does happen, Delaney. I mean, the weather hasn't really been on producers' sides this summer or, you know, this this growing season, I should say. So hopefully uh, weather starts to look up a little bit because I think that that's probably the biggest disaster right now that I can really think of off the top of my head. But Delaney, I also have some South American news as well because it sounds like there is more protests in Argentina Protests by workers in Argentina's key grains hub have snarled exports with roads blocked at some of the area's key ports, according to an industry official. The protests of construction workers began late yesterday and today actually spread to the entire districts of Porto General, San Martin, and Timbuis, which is just north of Rosario. And that's affecting shipments of Argentina's exports, of course. The workers from the UOCRA union are demanding salary improvements from the construction firms that work for the agro-export companies in the region. So, I, I feel like Argentina has really been kind of hurting lately just because of all of these protests, but that's just the demands from those workers this week. Absolutely, Ashton. I'm glad you're keeping an eye on that story. It sounds like there's a lot of turmoil that's continuing to go on down there, but I want to follow up with a story that I think I mentioned yesterday on the podcast, and that was this quote-unquote right to repair that we talked a little bit about It is expected that President Biden is going to sign an executive order on competition specifically here within the next few days, according to White House press secretary, who told reporters that during her conference yesterday afternoon. And of course, as I mentioned there, that right to repair is going to be part of this new executive order, as well as product of the U.S. labeling and Um, some other potential impacts to 
big, quote unquote, big competitive companies, big ag business companies. And so as uh, the White House secretary noted, the USDA is going to be announcing a series of proposed rules to increase competition in agriculture, as I mentioned yesterday. But we, again, still don't really have a pathway forward to understand what those rules are and how they're going to go about characterizing, um, you know, market dominance slash market manipulation slash who's controlling that marketplace. So it's going to be interesting to see how this thing gets rolled out here, but that is expected to be coming forward here by probably the end of this week. I saw that today as well, Delaney. I think there's a lot of anticipation on what we are going to see later this week. I feel like that's what the news was really centered around that right to repair I uh, initiative, I, I think is what you called it yesterday, Delaney. But uh, one other thing that I saw a few uh, articles about today is solar leases as Purdue's latest ag economy barometer surveys said that 2.6% of farmers in its poll indicated that they had signed a solar lease on some of their farmland. And by comparison, in a separate poll conducted earlier this year, just 1% of producers reported that they had signed a contract to participate in the nascent carbon market. So the articles are kind of saying that maybe these solar leases are going to be more popular than the carbon markets. We have seen a ton of conversation around carbon sequestration this year, but I don't think we've had a whole lot on solar leases. So solar power might be the next big thing that we're talking about, Delaney. No, I think it certainly will be, Ashton. You know, we were both out in Colorado this past weekend for the 4th of July, and I don't know if you saw, but I saw a ton of um, not carbon powered, but solar powered vehicles or not. That's not the right term like Tesla, where you plug them in. Gotcha. Yeah. I saw a couple of Teslas myself. I live over in an area that has a lot of shops and things like that. And a couple of them actually have the plugins for the the Teslas or the power cars. So I I have seen them quite often, actually, which is kind of surprising. Yeah. And I guess the other part of that, I didn't didn't, uh, spell that out very eloquently. But the other part of that was while I was in Colorado, I saw not only a lot of electric vehicle plugins, but also a lot of solar panels on houses, businesses, etc. So I feel like this quote unquote green energy is going to be a pretty big component moving forward. Um, as well as, you know, carbon sequestration and whatnot. I know we just had a new bill that was passed about two weeks ago now. And so we're still kind of waiting to see what happens there. But that's been something I've been watching pretty closely as well. Well, Delaney, I hope you were paying attention to the markets today because I'm all out of news. Do you think that that's our next stop? I think it is. Other than I just want to make a quick mention here because uh, we had some mixed trade today in the markets. And I think a lot of that was due to the fact that we saw an adjustment of rainfall expectations for the United States uh, to be potentially lower than what folks were meteorologists were originally thinking earlier in the week. So we saw that support, especially the soybean markets. Uh, I think we, if we do see that cut to Brazilian 
Safrina corn crop realized we'll also see that supported for the markets. But after yesterday's sell-off, we did see soybeans uh, claw their way back today into green territory. Uh, Corn, however, did not. September corn down nine and a quarter cent today to close at 542 and three quarters. The Dece down eight and three quarters to close at eight, excuse me, at 531. In the soybean pits today, the August contract up 22 and a half cents to close at 1366 and three quarters. The November contract up 22 and a quarter cent to close at 13. 1527 and a quarter. Chicago wheat today just slightly lower with the September contract closing down three and three quarters cents to close at 622 and a quarter. The Dece down three cents to close at 630 and a half. However, when you take a look at the hard red winter wheat today, we had strength there. So I'll go ahead and mention that briefly here as well. Well, the September contract up just three quarters of a cent to close at 584 and a half. The Dece up a quarter of a cent to close at 595 and three quarters. Hopping over to take a look at the livestock markets, they gave up not quite all of yesterday's gains, but maybe about half of them. The August live cattle contract down a dollar eighty to close at 12060. The October down a dollar forty-five to close at 12670. And in the feeder cattle pits today, the August contract down a dollar sixty-two and a half to close at 159. September down a dollar. 20 to close at 161.52 and a half. And looking over into the lean hog parlor today, the August contract down a dollar ninety-five to close at one hundred forty. The October down seventy-two and a half cents to close at eighty-three seventy-two and a half. And wrapping things up here with a class three dairy milk futures, August up thirty cents today to close at sixteen eighty-nine. The September up seven cents to close at seventeen nineteen. Ashton, without further ado, fill us in on who we're talking to for today's interview. Today, we're featuring some more World Pork Expo content with National Pork Board talking about real pork. Today we are talking to Angie Krieger, who is an NPB Vice President of Domestic Marketing, and Rich Deaton, who is an Ohio pork producer. Thank you both so much for joining us today. You're welcome. So, Angie, I'm going to go ahead and kick it off with you, because real pork really hasn't been around for too terribly long. You announced this, I believe, last fall is what I was just told before we started recording here. Didn't realize it was such a new program, so why don't you tell us about that and how it really came to be? Well, Real Pork launched last September, and we had been working on the concept of really bringing uh, the farm-to-fork story to consumers in a way that no commodity organization has ever done before, and COVID really sped up our process. So we knew we wanted to do something um, with a foundation of our We Care ethical principles and to help consumers uh, to eliminate some of the barriers that they have for, per- for purchasing pork. Some of those are production practices. Some of those are health concerns or other things. But Real Pork is our trust and image brand, and it's intended to drive demand for the pork industry by differentiating differentiating us from the alternatives in the marketplace, and there are a lot of them, and celebrating everything that's real about pork, um, which includes our pork producers. You, you talk about the We Care principles, and I believe that there are six of them, so if we could just touch on that real quick. I don't want to go too far into those or anything like that, but just touch on those principles just real quick. Give us the, the elevator pitch. Yeah, our We Care ethical principles are, are how our producers uh, grow pigs every day. So um, from caring about the environment to their employees to um, 
public safety and health, um, animal welfare, of course, is a big one. Um, and we just want to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to uh, protect our resources and grow a product that um, gets to the consumer's plate and provides them with healthy nutrition. That's fantastic. And Rich, I mean, you're a part of all this. You're a pork producer. So what does that mean to you from a producer standpoint? Sure. So this really gives us a platform to be able to, for us to tell our story that we are real pig farmers out here. We're real people taking care of real pigs. And these are real farms they're raised on. And it just a, a, it gives us an opportunity to be authentic as we tell our story. And we just show them the way it is. We don't have to, we have nothing to hide and we can be loud and proud about what we do. And Rich, how long have you been producing pork? Good question. I've got started soon after school, and so I've been at it 35 plus years. So you've seen a lot of changes through those years. And I mean, what's been the biggest change from telling your story? I feel like as we get more into a technology-based world, in a world where consumers are pretty concerned about what they have on their plates, it's a different story that we're going to have to be telling. So how is that working for you? Have you really had to kind of shift on the way that you operate? It hasn't made us change in what we do every day, but it, it has made us change in how we uh, communicate out uh, with the public. Us farmers, we love to get together and talk about what each other is doing, but this will give us an opportunity to talk to our consumers out on the coastlines that we don't see and they don't see us because we're geographically different areas. They don't g drive by cornfields. And so this will really give us that opportunity to reach out beyond our, our farm and our, our communities to the consumers out in, that don't see us on an everyday basis. And Angie mentioned that COVID-19, the pandemic, kind of had an impact on real pork in the way that that rolled out. So did the pandemic also have an effect on your operation on how you want to continue on producing and really getting to the consumer. Yeah, so the pandemic was a, an unprecedented time for all of us, right? So the, it, it made uh, us all aware of how important we are for each other on a daily basis. And it helped us just appreciate each other in, in, in all aspects of life, right? But also all, all aspects of what we're doing on a daily basis as we connect to the consumer. And Angie, I want to kick it back over to you because there's a lot of other great things that NPB is working on. And one of those is the Real Pork Mythbusting series. And I won't steal too much away from that. I'll let you go ahead and kind of announce that because that just rolled out. I believe it was within the past couple of days. Yes, we are very excited. Consumers want to know their, where their food comes from. And producers are a great way uh, for us to reach con produce or reach consumers. Consumers love hearing from producers, but there is a segment of um, our consumer base that's really skeptical. And we are partnering, I'm very excited to say, with an A-list celebrity, um, Eric Stone Street, who is popular from um, recent shows, Modern Family. He's been on CSI. He's actually um, got some other things in development now. And he is uniquely qualified 
to connect our production practices with the modern consumer because he grew up on a farm in Kansas. And he attributes a lot of his success to the values that he learned when he was showing 4-H pigs uh, back, back when he was in Kansas. And he lives in Kansas City, Missouri today. Um, so we, are, we couldn't be more excited to partner with Eric. Um, we're going to tackle um, probably about six myths this fall um, and think about things that are very common concerns for, for consumers who don't come from a farm or are three or four generations removed from a farm. Um, so they're, they're worried that the pigs are dirty. We hear that a lot from consumers. They, so they overcook pork and then they don't enjoy it as much as they could. We're going to show them that that's not true. And in fact, our modern production facilities are, are pristine and beautiful and our producers do an amazing job raising the pigs. Not only is hearing from someone who does have a background in the pork industry give us more of a sense of credibility and mm -hmm. connection with the consumer, but you guys have also been working with influencers. And so how has that been? I mean, a, a lot of these people, I would say, don't have significant knowledge or experience in the ag or the pork industry. Mm -hmm. So what has that been like? I assume it's kind of been a learning experience for you as well, trying to convey your message properly through the use of social media influencers? It has been. Influencers are a great way to reach new consumers. And we've worked with some really amazing chefs in the past, right? Think about um, the chefs that we've worked with who are professionals. But influencers can connect with the common uh, cook, um, the everyday cook. I would put myself in that category. If I see a chef cooking something, I think I couldn't do that. But if I see someone who is maybe a mom from the middle of the country, who has this amazing uh, blog post or YouTube channel, I'm like, okay, I could do that. And so um, our influencers have been a great way for us to reach that consumer. During COVID, people were looking for all sorts of inspiration about food. Um, and we look forward to continuing to evolve that influencer work to go beyond the food to help them also to tell our story. I've got to say, out of the red meats, I think pork scares me the most because even though I have been around this industry, I, I still don't quite know. You know, I have some learning experience as well, so it sounds like I can get all that I need from NPB. But Rich, I want to kick it back over to you for our, our last question here as we wrap up. But is there anything that you anticipate or that you hope to get out of this new partnership and uh, all that NPB has to offer when it comes to educating our consumers? Sure. As Angie already mentioned, the myths, that there's several of them. So one thing we're excited about is that we can address those myths, that our pigs are not dirty. They are raised and they're cared for every day, and that we can be proud of what we're doing, and that we can give our consumers that have some questions the permission to enjoy a great product. Absolutely. Well, to the both of you, I just want to thank you once more for joining us and talking about this today. I think that NPV has some great stuff in store, not only for our consumers, but for our producers as well. So Rich and Angie, thank you again for chatting about those opportunities with us. Thank you. Thanks again there to NPB for allowing us to step into their trailer for the week at World Pork Expo. We got to capture some really great content that we still have a couple of in the archives to share with you guys. So folks, you're going to have to tune in at agnewsdaily.com the next couple of days as we wrap up our World Pork Expo content with you all. But Delaney, with that, should we let the people go? 
let's let him go.